right, well, hey, good to see everybody. This evening, we're gonna be continuing to make our way. We have done 22 weeks of this. We're on chapter 20 of the gospel and the extent of grace thereof. We're just slowly making our way, trying to move as, as methodically as we're able for the good of those who are participating to give everybody room to think and ask questions and interact with it. Appreciate all of the thoughtful uh, questions and comments that I've received over the course of these many months, and I hope that it's been an edifying study for you as it has been for me. We are, as of last week, in the doctrine of God's law, turning the corner uh, into the last part of the confession, specifically concerning Christian liberty, uh, liberty of conscience, and all matters of things related to that. It begins with uh, article or chapter 19 on the doctrine of, or on the article of God's law. And then today, as is only appropriate, the law is being coupled with the gospel, and it's specifically interacting with uh, the extent of the grace of the gospel. So here's the question. When we look at the world today, for instance, uh, how are we to think about the fact that in the 1040 window uh, in Iraq and Afghanistan and, and places like that, uh, the gospel seems to be bare at best. It is a hard soil to plow in, and growth seems to be slow, very slow. While in China, for instance, or in the global south, the gospel seems to be exploding to the, tens, to the tunes of tens to hundreds of millions of conversions and of churches being planted. Uh, how do we explain that? How do we understand phenomenons like the, like the Great Awakening, for instance, or even some of the manipulations that came out of the Second Great Awakening? How do we even understand in the scriptures the gospel being delivered in types and shadows and patterns to one particular nation, but not to all nations, but then being offered to all people everywhere? Why just one nation? Why God's people? Why, why Israel? Chapter 20 is specifically aiming to answer those questions. What about the one who hasn't heard? What about um, how do we explain certain phenomenon in terms of what is causing gospel growth or the lack thereof around the world or throughout the ages? And the confession is really just going to give a handful of answers to it. Number one, the gospel is the means of the gospel, the content of the gospel, focused on Christ, that that is the central means that God uses. And yet, even how the gospel ends up bearing fruit around the world and throughout the ages is ultimately up to God's sovereignty. You say, well, that sounds like a little bit of a cop-out. Well, we want to try to go into Scripture this evening just for a few minutes and consider those things, that God is ultimately sovereign. It's not man. It's not anything in us that we produce that makes us eligible or ineligible for the gospel. It is God according to his good pleasure and will that makes his gospel work as it works in the world. And so considering all of that, would you read with me just the opening paragraph in your confession? This is chapter 20, the gospel and the extent of its grace. Because the covenant of works was broken by sin and unable to confer life, God was pleased to proclaim the promise of Christ, the seed of the woman, as the means of calling the elect 
and producing in them faith and repentance. In the promise, in this promise, the gospel in its substance was revealed and made effectual for the conversion and the salvation of sinners. Now, I want you to notice a handful of things. I want you to notice, first of all, how the opening paragraph of this article is building on previous articles. You should see familiar language that's appearing, right? We want to read the confession, not just top to bottom, chapter by chapter. We want to read it left to right as an organic body of divinity. It mentions the covenant of works, the covenant made with Adam in the garden that was broken. Adam sinned, death and sin spread to all men. That was the penalty that was guaranteed to Adam, as we've seen in Genesis 2 and in Genesis 3. But there in Genesis 3.15, we see that God was pleased not to leave man in his sin, but to proclaim the promise of Christ, the seed of the woman, that seed of the woman that would crush the serpent's head. And that promise, that first revelation of the gospel, what theologians refer to as the proto-evangelion, the first gospel, it says here that that first gospel was the means of calling the elect and producing in them faith and repentance. And so here the confession is just maintaining what it's what it's summarized from the beginning of the confession, and that is that the gospel is not just a New Testament reality. It is something that was revealed, first of all, in Genesis 3.15, was progressively revealed, unfolded in farther steps through various types and shadows and promises, and yet the substance was always the same. And so it's interesting, for instance, Paul writes in Galatians 3, that the scriptures preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham. Well, what gospel? A different gospel? The same gospel? Well, that's Paul's foundation for saying that Abraham believed by faith in the same gospel that we're called to believe in. There's always been one gospel, one plan, one people saved by faith alone, in Christ alone. Later on, you remember Romans chapter 2, we'll, we'll see this chapter in a little bit. Uh, the Apostle Paul talking about uh, those who hear the gospel, don't respond to it. Uh, he says, Isaiah says that they have heard the gospel and not responded. Well, who heard the gospel? Those to whom Isaiah was, was preaching. So Abraham received the gospel, Isaiah preached the gospel. The gospel is not just four books in the New Testament. And the gospel is not something that the apostles preached merely from Pentecost onward. It has been from Genesis 3.15 onward, revealed first as a promise, and then revealed in farther steps through various types and shadows and ordinances, through the law and through promises and other things. And the substance of the gospel was revealed, it says. And it was made effectual for the conversion and the salvation of sinners. In other words, all that God revealed and those gospel promises, the substance of it, finding their yes and amen in Christ. Remember, that's Abraham saw my day and he rejoiced. Whose day? The day of Christ. He knew that God's promises weren't pertaining to his own day or even to, uh, sh to subsequent generations in the near future. He looked forward to the day of Christ 
when God would make good on his promises. And it's saying that the substance of those promises that were delivered were sufficient to be used by the Holy Spirit to effectually call and regenerate all of God's saints through all of the ages. Old Testament saints, New Testament saints. Saved in the exact same way that is the substance of the gospel first revealed in a promise, later on fully revealed through the incarnation, death, and life of Christ and the preaching of the apostles. But it's all one and the same. The apostles saw themselves as part of the prophetic tradition of the Old Testament. The prophetic tradition of the Old Testament anticipated the apostolic witness. All of it centered on the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And so we see, first of all, if you're following along in your outline, we have that the gospel is something that's ultimately revealed. God speaks it in promissory form and then ultimately in his son. But now moving on, we see that the gospel is not only revealed in God's promise, but even more narrowly, more specifically, it's revealed in God's word. Paragraph 2. The promise of Christ and of salvation through him is revealed in the word of God alone. So here, if you're following along in your packet, we're speaking about the exclusivity of special revelation. But it goes on to say that the works of creation and providence, when assisted only by the light of nature, do not reveal Christ or grace through him, that is the gospel, even in a general or obscure way. In other words, it's not that God has given a little bit of gospel light in what he's created, but then a whole lot more gospel light through the prophets, apostles, and the life and ministry of Jesus. No, he says, much less are those without the revelation of him and the promise of the gospel enabled to attain saving faith or repentance by seeing these works of God. In other words, man cannot go out into God's creation apart from God speaking the truth of the gospel and the effectual work of the Spirit accompanying God's word and be saved. He can't look at the trees and the skies, and even though those things declare the glory of God on a loop, it doesn't ultimately tell a sinner that he's a sinner or how he can be saved by faith in Christ. I want you to consider a handful of texts just to kind of show how the confession is summarizing scriptural teaching here. Uh, first of all, notice if you go backwards um, that the confession is once again summarizing what previously came before it. It's leaning heavily regarding the exclusivity of special revelation on chapter 7, verse 3. It says, This covenant revealed in the gospel, that is the covenant of grace, that covenant in which all of God's elect through all time are brought into by the gospel through faith, that it was established by the blood of Christ historically in the new covenant, says it was revealed first of all to Adam in the promise of salvation through the seed of the woman. And after that, it was revealed step by step until the full revelation of it was completed in the New Testament. And we need to see that the confession is saying the same thing. It is revealed and it is revealed exclusively in the scriptures such that the revelation of the gospel is not revealed anywhere else. It is revealed in the scriptures. Consider a handful of things. Romans 1, 16 to 17. What does Paul say about the gospel in Romans 1, 16 to 17? Familiar passage for all of us. 
considering the exclusivity of God's word, he says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. So he's saying the gospel is the power of God for salvation. 17, for in it, the righteousness of God is what? It is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Now, this isn't the first time that Paul's mentioned the gospel in the book of Romans. He says all the way back up at the opening part of the chapter, he says, I'm a servant of Christ Jesus. I was called to be an apostle. I was set apart for the gospel of God. Well, what is the gospel of God? Well, he says in verse 2, which he promised beforehand through the prophets in the Holy Scriptures. And so the confession is really just trying to summarize what the Scriptures say, and that is that God has revealed the gospel. He has spoken it both in promissory form and in its fulfillment in Christ. And the revelation of the gospel has been revealed in the Scriptures, both in the Old and the New Testaments. The Old Testament anticipating Christ and the New Testament explaining Him in light of His coming. And so the Scriptures exclusively reveal. That's why when you get to Romans 10, go there with me, we see that what is ultimately necessary for the salvation of sinners is not that they go outside and behold the glory of God in creation. What do they need? They need someone to preach. They need a preacher to preach the Scriptures. Follow along with me, beginning in verse 11. For the scriptures say, everyone who believes in him, that is speaking of Christ, will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him, on all who respond to the gospel. Verse 13. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But here's the conundrum, verse 14. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? If the gospel was revealed through general revelation, through what God has created, there would be no need for preachers. Preachers are needed because though general revelation is sufficient to reveal that there is such a person as God, revealing his glory, his invisible attributes, his power, it cannot tell a sinner how he or she might be saved by faith in Christ. Verse 15, how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? What Isaiah has in view in terms of what they have heard and rejected and disbelieved is the good news that was preached. Who was the preacher? Isaiah says, it was us. It was him, it was his prophetic band, it was his prophetic tradition. All those called by the name of the Lord, or called by the Lord, 
to be his messengers in the world. Paul and the apostles find themselves in that prophetic line. They would include themselves in Isaiah's plural, us. So verse 17, faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. That the gospel is exclusively, that it is revealed in God's word. It's exclusively set forth in scripture and it has to be proclaimed to all people everywhere as the means whereby sinners might believe. So we see here in paragraph two, both the exclusivity of special revelation, that the promise of Christ and salvation by him is revealed only in the word of God. And then we see the insufficiency of general revelation that the works of creation, the light of nature, make discovery of Christ or of grace by him so much as in a general obscure way, much less that men destitute of the revelation of him, those who don't have the scriptures, don't have preachers, the revelation of him by the promise or gospel should be enabled thereby to attain saving faith or repentance. They have to be preached and all true preaching comes from God's word. This is coincidentally how the entire confession begins. Chapter 1, paragraph 1. The Holy Scriptures are the only sufficient, certain, and infallible standard of all saving knowledge, faith, and obedience. The light of nature and the works of creation and providence so clearly demonstrate the goodness, wisdom, and power of God, here's the purpose of general revelation, that people are left without excuse. However, these demonstrations, that is the works of creation and providence, are not sufficient to give the knowledge of God and his will that is necessary for salvation. Well, what do you need? God has to speak, and he has spoken in promissory form. And over the course of of, of redemptive history, he's revealed it progressively and more and more fully until it finds its fulfillment in the person and the work of Jesus Christ, all of which has been inscripturated. Thus, the gospel is found only in the scriptures. General revelation is insufficient. The gospel is in God's word. We preach God's word and we aim to preach it to all men everywhere as we're able. Well, now we're going to turn not <clears throat> from seeing, for instance, in paragraphs 1 and 2, the revelation of the gospel to, in paragraphs 3 and 4, the God of the gospel. And we're going to see a couple of things. We're going to see, first of all, in paragraph 3, we're going to consider the gospel and God's sovereignty. And then in paragraph 4, we're going to consider the gospel and God's spirit. The gospel and God's sovereignty and the gospel and God's spirit. Consider paragraph three, read it along with me. The revelation of the gospel to sinners made in diverse times and by sundry parts, quoting Hebrews one, with the addition of promises and precepts, promises to those who believe, precepts for what to do in response to the gospel, repent and believe. 
for the obedience required therein as to the nations and persons to whom it is granted is merely of the sovereign will and good pleasure of God. He's saying, first of all, God is sovereign over its revelation. That over the course of redemptive history, that it was revealed, how it was revealed, to whom it was revealed, over what course of time it was revealed, at what time that revelation found its fullness in Christ, and how over the course of the centuries that followed, it has now been preached from, from uh, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the outer ends of the earth until the present age. That in all of these ways, the revelation of the gospel, God is sovereign over it. He has purposed when and how and to whom and over what amount of time to reveal it in the manner that he has. That what we see in the gradual revelation of the gospel, first promised in Genesis 3 and then progressively revealed across the scriptures throughout redemptive history, is no less than the sovereign purposes of God, purposed according to his own will before the creation of the world being enacted in time, space, and history exactly as he would have it done for the fulfillment of his purposes in his creation, for the salvation of a people and for the revelation of his will for salvation. The key phrase here is made in diverse times and by sundry parts. And whenever you run into the confession, a part that they go, boy, I've seen that before. I think I've heard that before then you might want to go see how the, the confession is aiming to faithfully summarize Scripture. Hebrews chapter 1. Verse 1. Long ago, at Many times and in many ways, or at diverse times and in sundry parts, same things. God spoke. Remember we said God is sovereign over his revelation. God has revealed the gospel. What has he done? At various times and in all different kinds of ways, according to his own sovereign purposes and good pleasure, he spoke. To our fathers by the prophets. Verse 2, but now in these last days, he hasn't spoken in many times, and he doesn't no longer speak in many ways. He speaks only in one way, and that is he has spoken to us by his Son. The many times and the many ways were all aimed at, were proclaiming in promissory form the Son to come, and now that the Son has come, he is both the Logos, the Word of God, and He is the sum and the substance of the message. And as we study through Hebrews, He teases out what that is. The point that you're supposed to see here, though, is that God spoke long ago, and He speaks in these last days. He once spoke in many times and in many ways, and now He's speaking one way through the Lord Jesus Christ. And in all of these things, what it does is testify to the sovereign will and purposes of God, His perfect will in accomplishing his work of salvation through his means of revelation. So God is sovereign over revelation. But we also see in the second half of the, conf second half of the paragraph that he's not just sovereign over its revelation, he's also sovereign over its recipients. 
consider a handful of verses with me. Prior to the coming of Christ, Psalm 147. Beginning in verse 18. The Lord sends out his word and he melts them. Speaking of Israel's enemies, the nations. He makes his wind blow and his waters flow. He declares his word to Jacob and his statutes and rules to Israel. He has not dealt thus with any other nation. They do not know his rules. And then here's the conclusion to God's sovereign purposes in electing one particular nation instead of multiple nations or all the nations. Why one nation? Here's the response of the psalmist in verse 20. Praise the Lord. It's to exalt his sovereignty. When you get to Romans 9, the Apostle Paul is going to make a similar argument. Romans chapter 9. Why Israel? Why Jacob? Of course, the question that's being asked in Romans 9 is, if Israel has rejected the gospel and the gospel is going out to all of the nations, has the gospel failed? No, he says, verse 6, it's not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. There are some who are from Abraham's flesh, and then there are some who are of Abraham's faith, the true Israel. And not all are the children of Abraham because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise who are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. Well, about this time next year, I will return and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. Of course, to them, the, old, the younger should serve the older. The older is the one who deserves the inheritance. He's the firstborn, but God reverses it. Why? Because of his purpose of election. As it is written, Jacob I loved, were chosen, but Esau I hated or excluded. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose, I have raised you up that I might show my power in you, that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whoever he wills. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? Who can resist his will? But who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? 
Well, what does molded say to its molder? Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? That is Jacob and children of the promise by faith and others who are children of the flesh like Esau but reject the gospel? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his powers, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory? Even us whom he's called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles, for the nations. Now, this is the beginning of a long argument going all the way through the end of chapter 11 on Israel in relationship to the nations and the one gospel that has always been preached. Who's true Israel and how does she relate to the nations? This is how he ultimately concludes this entire section concerning the sovereignty of God over its revelation, the revelation of the gospel. Who he's given it to and who he hasn't. Why Israel? And why now the nations? And why is Israel rejecting, but the nations accepting all these various questions? This is what he says. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? Isaiah 59, for from him and through him and to him are all things, to him be the glory forever and ever, amen. Just listen to this, the end of the psalm again. He sends out his word and he melts him. He makes his wind blow and the waters flow. He declares his word to Jacob, his statutes and rules to Israel. He has not dealt thus with any other nation. They do not know his rules. Praise the Lord. Oh, the depths of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. He's sovereign. Who are we, the potter or the pot, to accuse the potter of why he does what he does? So he's sovereign over its, not only its revelation, but also sovereign over its recipients. Finally, we see the gospel in God's spirit. Well, how then, as the gospel is spread, and it spreads to all men, why are there some places where there seems to be very, a whole lot of gospel, but very little conversion? And why does there seem to be some places where there was but a little gospel and a whole lot of conversion? And how do we think about that? Read the fourth paragraph with me. Although the gospel be the only outward means of revealing Christ and saving grace and is as such abundantly sufficient thereunto, that is of sufficient to reveal Christ and saving grace, yet that men who are dead in trespasses may be born again, quickened or regenerated, there is moreover necessary an effectual and insuperable work of the Holy Spirit upon the whole soul for the producing in them of new spiritual life, without which no other means will affect their conversion unto God. Once again, we find the confession leaning on what it summarized in Scripture in previous chapters. Look at chapter 10. 
on effectual calling. Paragraph one, in God's appointed and acceptable time, he's pleased to call effectually by his word and spirit those he has predestined to life. He calls them out of their natural state of sin and death to grace and salvation by Jesus Christ. He enlightens their minds spiritually to savingly understand the things of God. He takes away their heart of stone and he gives them a heart of flesh and he renews their wills by his almighty power, turns them to good and effectually draws them to Jesus Christ. Yet, he does all this in such a way that they come completely freely since they are made willing by his grace. Look at chapter 14. Paragraph 1, concerning saving faith. The grace of faith enables the elect to believe so that their souls are saved. It is the work of the Spirit of Christ in their hearts. And this faith is ordinarily produced by the ministry of the Word. By this same ministry and by the administration of baptism and Lord's Supper, prayer and other means appointed by God, faith is increased and strengthened. And so by this faith, enabled by the Spirit of God, who has worked in our hearts, what is it then as Christians that we behold to be true? Consider what we just said. The gospel is something revealed. It is found exclusively in the scriptures. And so naturally then, what, the, what is the object of our faith? What, what is it that we believe when we're brought by the power of the Holy Spirit to believe? By this faith, paragraph 2, Christians believe to be true everything revealed in the Word, recognizing it as the authority of God Himself. They also perceive that the Word is more excellent than every other writing and everything else in the world because it displays the glory of God and His attributes, the excellence of Christ and His nature and offices, and the power and fullness of the Holy Spirit and His activities and operations. So they are enabled to entrust their souls to the truth believed. They respond differently. According to the content of each particular passage, obeying the commands, trembling at the threatenings, embracing the promises of God for this life and the one to come, but the principal acts of saving faith focus directly on Christ, accepting, receiving, and resting upon Him alone for justification, sanctification, and eternal life by virtue of the covenant of grace. That is, by virtue of the covenant whereby God gives all that he promises, including the gift of the Holy Spirit. And so here we see that, on the one hand, the gospel may go out to all kinds of people, and it may go out to all kinds of nations, all throughout our own nation, as well as Iraq and Afghanistan, including China, as well as the global south and South America, South Africa and other places. And boy, it just seems to be doing different things all over the world. Why? Because even if the gospel is faithfully preached in every nation, it is only effectual under salvation when the Holy Spirit makes it so. Consider Psalm 110, verse 3. 
Such a beautiful portrait of God's regenerating and renewing grace. It ultimately is from God. God causes his word to work. God is the one that produces life where there was previously death. He is the one who by his word and the working of the Holy Spirit raises us from death to life. This is what it says, Psalm 110. The Lord sends forth from Zion, verse 2, your mighty scepter rule in the midst of your enemies, speaking of the Messiah. Your people, these messianic people, those who will receive by faith the Son of God revealed as the promised Messiah, these people will offer themselves freely, get this, on the day of your power in holy garments, from the womb of the morning, the dew of the youth will be yours. And while there may be some disputes over how to exactly translate a number of verses in that passage, the point still is nevertheless clear that those who come to Zion, that those who have produced in them new life and new fruitfulness, just as our front yards do when... It receives when it's covered in dew day after day. He says all of that ultimately comes from you and it is for you. And so it is God's work that effectually calls his people. This is made even more clear in the further revelation of the New Testament, 1 Corinthians chapter 2. We've already noted on this passage a number of times, but it's so key to the notion of effectual calling. Why, when the gospel goes out, do some people think it's the very power of God and the wisdom of God? And why do other people think that it's foolishness? He gives the reason. No eye, verse 9, has seen, no ear has heard, nor the heart imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. In other words, human eyes and human ears and human hearts left to themselves cannot comprehend the mystery of the grace of God in the gospel revealed in Christ. How then can an eye which has not seen be brought to see? How can an ear that is deaf be made to hear? How can the heart of man which is dead and stony and hard, be brought to imagine the glories of God and the grace of his salvation in Christ. Verse 10, these things God has revealed to us, the apostles who now preach it to us in the scriptures. He's revealed it to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. Now we've received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words not taught in human wisdom, but taught by the spirit interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. Verse 14, the natural person, those who are dead in their trespasses and sins, who are by nature children of wrath, the natural person does not accept the things of the spirit of God for their folly to him. 
and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. They are revealed to them by the Spirit. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? No, we have the mind of Christ. The apostles have received it. They have preached it and written it down. We have received it and in the Spirit's power have believed it. Those who were once dead have been brought by God's grace to repent and believe in the gospel. Those who were once blind now can see. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Why is it that some people to whom the gospel is generally preached fail to believe, refuse to believe? Why does the natural man not comprehend the things of God? And why is it that some are brought to repent and believe in the gospel? that see the glory of the face of God shown in the light of the knowledge of, of the face of Jesus Christ. Well, here's what it says. He says, this ministry that we receive by the mercy of God, that is his apostolic ministry, we don't lose heart. We're not discouraged by being rejected, but we have renounced disgraceful underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word because we know ultimately he's saying that the power of salvation lies not in our cunning. It lies not in our manipulations. It lies ultimately in the power of God through the spirit of God to use the work of God or the word of God to do the work of God to the glory of God in the time of God. That's Paul's confidence. He says, no, the op by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. We have clear consciences that the words that we speak are God's words, and he approves. Verse 3, and even if our gospel is veiled, even if people can't see it, who are those who won't see it? Who are those in the dark? It is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. They live in darkness. What does Paul say in Colossians chapter 1? He tells us to give thanks to God who has transferred us out of the domain of what? Darkness into the kingdom of his beloved Son. Verse 5, for what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. Christ is the heart of the gospel. He's the focus of our message. He is the sum and the substance of both the promises of the gospel revealed all the way back in Genesis 3 that were further revealed through the prophets and are now being preached by the apostles, he says. But here's the kicker, verse 6. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness. Just stop for a minute. Paul is having us go all the way back to Genesis 1. He wants us to think about how he has taken that which was once formless and void and dark and has produced something that reveals his very glory and did it all just by speaking, by his word for God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. 
consider for a second the kind of power that is required to take a sinner from life to death. Consider the kind of almighty, omnipotent, world-creating power is necessary to cause those who are once blind to now see. God does it. And how does he do it? He does it through the outward means of the word that is preached, and he does it through the revealing, illuminating ministry of the Holy Spirit that we might see. One more text. 2 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter 1, rather. 1 Peter 1. Why do some people believe and some people don't? What is the means that God uses and what is ultimately what is the outward means and what are the effectual means? He says to them, having... Well, I'm going to go back. Let's see. No, here we go. Having purified your souls, verse 22, by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. And then he works his way backwards. Since, here's what preceded your obedience to the truth. Here's what has preceded your brotherly love. Here is what has preceded the love that you with which you love earnestly from a pure heart. Here is the source. Here's the genesis of everything in verse 22. Verse 23, you have been born again, not of perishable seed, that is the mere words of men, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass. Sound familiar? And it's glory like the flower of grass, but the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. Every Lord's Day, after the public reading of, the, of Scripture, the preacher asks or says, the grass withers and the flower fades and we all confess together but the word of the Lord endures forever. And that is to serve to us a twofold reminder. One, it is the power of God according to his sovereign will and good pleasure through the illuminating work of the Holy Spirit that he brings dead sinners to new life. Secondly, it is a reminder to the preacher that you are not up here to advance your own cause by human cunning and human wisdom, you are to preach the word of God centered on the person and the work of Jesus Christ. There is no other means for salvation or for the building up of the church into maturity except for that. That's where we start. This is the good news that was preached to you. I'm just going to keep on going because this is all just too good. Just reading Scripture, applying it to our minds and our hearts, Ephesians 1. Just thinking about the general call of the gospel, but God's power in redeeming sinners. Specifically, here's what I'm thinking about. Without which no other means will affect their conversion unto God. God is producing in them new spiritual life. Look at Ephesians 1, 19 and 20. 
Whoop, went a little too far. Ephesians 1. He has called you. The eyes of our hearts have been enlightened, he says, that we may know something that we previously didn't know, namely what is the hope to which he has called us, that is the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. And where does our belief come from? It is according to the working of his great might. Why do we believe? Because the God who said, let light shine out of the darkness has spoken through his word that we might behold the light of the glory of God in the face of Christ through his power. John 6, familiar passage. John 6, Jesus answered his, his detractors, verse 43, do not grumble among yourselves, he says. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. No one can come to me unless the Father who sends me draws him. Why does the gospel go out at all different times, to all different kinds of people with varying degrees of visible success because God is sovereign. He's sovereign over his revelation. He is sovereign over its recipients. He has appointed the outward means, that is, the gospel revealed in the scriptures centered on the person and work of Christ. And he alone is the one that makes his gospel work. For the salvation of sinners. He's the one that makes it effective. It's his effectual call. So what uh, should these scriptural truths motivate us to do? Inevitably, we're, all of us are going to wrestle at one point or another, and probably many times throughout our lives. What about those who haven't believed? What about the Bushman who has never heard? Can he be saved without anybody preaching the gospel to them? The scriptures say no. Well, how are we to reconcile that with the goodness of God as we saw in Romans 9 and, and in Psalm 147 and elsewhere? We entrust ourselves to the sovereignty of God. Who can comprehend his mind or his will? And so we cannot impugn the justice of God. We can only believe and receive what is revealed about himself in the scriptures that he is sovereign over these things. His will is ultimately accomplished. And avoiding the temptation to impugn the justice of God then, we turn and look not at ourselves, but ultimately back to God and we ask, why was I brought to feast when so many others refused to come? Why me? And the only answer that can be given is not because of any goodness in us, but because of God's sovereign grace. Why did the gospel, why, why, why has the gospel exploded in communist China where Christianity isn't even publicly allowed? Why is it 
one of the countries in the world where the gospel is growing at the fastest rates, at the clips of tens of millions of converts. Because God is sovereign over his revelation and its recipients, over the preaching of the gospel and its effectiveness. Who knows his mind in these things? But he's sovereign over them. Or what about in our own country when we preach and we preach and we preach and our brothers go out to the curbs and they preach and we stand up here in our own sanctuary and we preach and conversions from church to church to city to city seem to be so far and few apart. God is sovereign over those things. It's the same gospel. It's the same outward call. But he is sovereign over its effectual workings. And so we entrust himself to it. And that leads us to do a handful of things. It leads us, first of all, to pray. Prayer is ultimately an act of humility and submission that recognizes that the conversion of my neighbor and the conversion of our children and the conversion of my unbelieving spouse and the conversion of my coworkers is ultimately not my work but God's work. And so I'm going to go to God and I'm going to pray and plead with him to save my neighbor, to save my son, save my daughter. And as I pray... I'm going to preach. I'm going to press into them as I'm able, the very means, the outward means that God uses by his Holy Spirit to bring those who are dead to life, who were once blind to see, who were once deaf to hear, whose hearts previously could not imagine and now see in their hearts the light of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So we humble ourselves, not going beyond Scripture. We just submit ourselves to what Scripture teaches. We're finite. God is infinite. We're not going to try to wrap our minds around an infinite God because if we succeed, we're left with not God. And we're going to pray and we're going to preach. And as a church, we're going to labor to use our money and our efforts to partner with organizations and with people in other churches to get the gospel to those who haven't heard. Because that's what God uses. That is chapter 20 of the gospel and of the extent of grace thereof.